If you have your Bibles, find Matthew, please. Matthew 5, the good news according to Matthew. And um, we're continuing to talk uh, for this week and next about the Sermon on the Mount, really to lift some paragraphs from Jesus' sermon overlooking the Sea of uh, Galilee. And today we're in Matthew 5, beginning at verse 13. If you can picture Jesus standing there uh, on, the, on the mountain with throngs uh, gathered around him, he said, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everything, everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Salt and light. Salt and light uh, make a difference. Salt and light have an attractional quality to them. Salt and light make a difference. Salt makes a difference. Salt, of course, makes food taste better. Salt preserves. If you lose salt from your body, you have to replenish that salt. Uh, Salt, uh, Shelley even taught us, makes uh, good Play-Doh. Salt is... Salt makes a difference. Likewise, we're called to make a difference in our world. Light makes a, a difference. Light makes, um, makes streets and parking lots safer. Lights, light prevents you from stubbing your little toe in the middle of the night and saying something you wouldn't want your Sunday school teacher to hear you say. Light's a good thing. Light makes a difference. We're light, the light of the world. We're made to make a difference. Salt and light have an attractional quality to them. Salt makes you thirsty, which is why our friends at the movie theater put so much salt in the popcorn so you'll buy a $12 soda pop in 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 the lobby. Light is attractional. You light a campfire and people are just drawn around it. We were made to be attractional to Jesus so that people would see our deeds and glorify our Father in heaven so that people would look at us and say, you know, those they are very imperfect, those followers of Jesus, but they make such a positive difference in the world that the one they follow must be worthy of our consideration. We were made to make a difference. We were made to be attractional. I wonder how we're doing in uh, in that department or those departments maybe. Well, maybe not uh, as well as we could. In fact, I would suggest that when it, com- when it comes to being salt and light, American Christians are underperforming. There's so many of us in our country, you would imagine that we'd make a bigger difference and that our lives would be so attractional that there would be more people wanting to follow Jesus because of the positive difference that we're making. But I would suggest that when it comes to being salt and light, American Christians are somewhat underperforming. Where did we go wrong? In the early days, in the first three centuries, Christians were, were very salty and very lighty. It was in the first three, three centuries when someone got sick, even in a plague, even in a pandemic, it was the Christians who would come and risk their own health taking care of the people who were sick. When family members would leave, Christians would come. Christians would purchase freedom for slaves. Christians were the ones. 
clothing the naked and feeding the hungry and visiting people who were in prison. Christians were a persecuted group. They were, a, in the beginning, a rather small movement, but they, were known, they became known for mercy and compassion and for making a difference such that people were drawn to Jesus so that the Christian movement multiplied and multiplied and multiplied and people were, Christians were making a difference and people were attracted to Jesus. And then in the fourth century, Constantine was made emperor of the Roman Empire. Constantine declared himself a Christian, declared it legal to be Christians, and, and the church with a capital C was no longer a movement. It became an institution. They built buildings. Their clergy were paid and educated and closely aligned, dangerously aligned with the government. And so the church ceased to be a movement and became an institution, became rather self-centered, became concerned about its own self-preservation, about its own preferences. And so they were no longer a movement, they were an institution. And with time, the church with a capital C began to rely on the government to do what the church originally had done about the poor and about the sick. That was a long time ago, but we still, I think, rely on the government to do what originally our forefathers and foremothers did. We were made to make a difference. Anyone who has heard me and known me over the years knows that I understand my primary message to be that of, 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 of spiritual transformation, of individuals who are born with a nature, a sin nature, the overwhelming tendency to do the wrong thing. And I believe. Anybody who's heard and known me over the years would know, I know that to be my primary message, that humankind's biggest problem is what the Bible calls sin, and our greatest need is Jesus. Anybody who's heard me and known me over the years knows that I understand my primary message to be that the cross and an empty tomb stand at the center of history and at the heart of the Bible. But I also know that is not the only message. An individual's relationship with God through Jesus, a, an individual's transformation, those are, that is not the only message in the Bible. For example, in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 16 speaks of the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. And verse 49 reads, they had an excess of food and pros, uh, uh, prosperous leisure. They, they were living well, but they did not aid the poor and needy. Isaiah 59, there God speaks. You go through your religious rituals, you gather and do all the religious things, yet some of you are actively participating in oppression. He calls them then to work for fairness, toward fairness for everyone. Galatians 3.28, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. That has spiritual implications, but it also has, or it has a vertical implication, but it also has horizontal implications. God is concerned about the whole person. He's concerned about society, not just my heart. I say all that to say that, that the gospel is about more than one's individual relationship to Jesus. We're called to be salt and light in our world, in our society. We are made to make a difference. And I know so many of you are doing that around the city, our place. I know some of you are involved there, and that's such a wonderful ministry among people with mental illness. 
Some of you are involved in fresh expressions of church, these new forms of church for people who might never come to a place like 600 Governors Drive. Our ministers are all involved in uh, civic and uh, school activities beyond the church bubbles to make sure that we are salt and light in our city and in our region. We are learning to be church at the heart of the city with a heart for the region from Blossomwood to Butler Terrace, from the Ledges to Lincoln Village, from Twickenham to Todd Towers. We are learning to be church at the heart of the city with a heart for our region. And I want you to know what I'm doing. And I want you to know why I'm doing it. Some of you know that for the last uh, few weeks, I have been particularly engaged in events and conversations around our city having to do with race and racial unity. I want you to know my heart. I want you to trust my heart. I know you can't trust my heart unless you know my heart. I want you to understand uh, my motives. I want you to understand not only what I'm doing, but why I'm uh, doing it. If I ever lose your trust, I will lose my ministry among you. So I want you to trust me, and so I want you to know me. I know that white people are not responsible for all the problems in the black community any more than black people are responsible for all the problems in the white community. I know that racism runs both ways. One of the hottest books on the topic Nowadays is titled How to Be Anti-Racist, and the black writer, the black author, acknowledges his struggle to overcome his prejudice toward white people. I know that there are lots of people calling for social justice who also are, are espousing radical politics and destroying property. I know all those things, but I also know some other things. I know some people make antiquated but harmful blanket assumptions about black people, about their morals, and about their intelligence. I know some, people, some white people lump black people together into a stereotype. A man I met uh, recently, I didn't know before, wanted to have a conversation about my position on race, and he began by saying, I am not a racist but then continued to say, blacks this and blacks that. When, when we harbor vestiges of racism in our hearts, we tend to lump people together instead of seeing them as individuals. I know there are still white employers. Let's, let's imagine a small business. They're, they've put out a, an ad for a, an administrative assistant. They get two resumes with equal credentials, equal education and and. Uh, and um, experience. Uh, there are no pictures on the resumes, but one is named Shaniqua, and the other one is named Susie. I know there's still businesses where Susie is the only one who's going to get an interview. I know, there, I know that black men live under suspicion still uh, on the part of many. I've been told that in recent weeks by a retired three-star Marine general, an African-American man, a, African-American man who is presently captain in the Huntsville Police Department and by a recently retired African-American FBI officer. I know it's easy to dismiss the concerns that, that many black people have because of the rabble-rousers, because of those who destroy property and who espouse 
radical political positions. I know William Pinnell, who was longtime professor at Fuller Seminary in California. I, I know that William Pinnell is right when he said, the ugliest four-letter word in human vocabulary is the word them. And I still hear a lot of them. I sense a divine call to stand in, to, in the gap. If, we don't, if somebody doesn't stand in the gap, then we just remain on either side of the, of the canyon or the street, and we look distrustingly at them over there. So somebody has to stand in the, in the gap to listen and to learn, not to lecture, to translate, to help people understand each other, to engage in the ministry of reconciliation. 1 Corinthians 5.18 reads, God has reconciled us to Himself through Christ and given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Quite frankly, I don't know how we engage in the ministry of reconciliation if we're all standing on either side, if some of us are not in the gap. And quite frankly, being in the gap is not always fun. There's a Japanese novel with the title, Shot by Both Sides. I've not read it, but I get it. When my life is nearly over on this earth, if God grants to me the privilege of looking back, I will look back at uh, days spent in the gap, at, as days and a place for which God prepared me, to which He called me, and I granted an honor uh, to be standing in the gap. Let me put it another way. Two of the most um, important issues in our society right now are abortion and racism. If you know me well, you know, you don't have to know me well, uh, I am uh, pro-life. I'm also anti-racism. Are they connected? Yes, they are. How are they connected? Well, thank you for asking, let me tell you. To be pro-life and to be anti-racism are closely connected in a number of ways. Let me give you three. First of all, to be pro-life and to be anti-racism means that some people will think I've gone too far and some will think I haven't gone far enough. Let's take being pro-life. When I say I'm pro-life, there are people in our culture, our society, who would say that's judgmental. You'll make people feel bad who might have chosen an abortion, and that would never be my intent. But people would say, if you say you're pro-life, you make people feel bad. You should be more grace-filled. So some would say, I go too far. Others would say, I don't go far enough. Many of you remember our protesters who came a few weeks ago, came several times, or more than one time, not only our church, but others. They know I'm pro-life. They know our church supports Huntsville Pregnancy Resource Center. They know that uh, lots of us in this room, if not most of us in this room, would be pro-life. But we're not pro-life enough. They want us to be belligerently pro-life. So they carry grotesque pictures, yell even at our families who are coming and going from worship because we're not pro-life enough. So when I say I'm pro-life, there's some who would say I don't go far enough. Some would say I go too far. When I say I'm anti-racism, there are people who would say I go too far. Some would say I don't go, go far enough. There are those who would say I should just leave well enough alone that there are better ways for me to invest my leadership, that you're going too far. But then there are others who have said to me, you're not being aggressive enough. 
and have wanted me to say things I could not in good conscience say. So being pro-life and anti-racism are actually closely related. One, for, for one reason, it makes some people say I'm going too far and others not far enough. There's another connection, parallel. Neither abortion nor racism are political issues. Neither abortion nor racism is a political issue. They are moral issues. Now, I know that when I say I'm pro-life, in the, in the minds of many, that aligns me with a particular political mindset. When I say I'm anti-racism, in the minds of many, it aligns me with a particular political mindset. But in my mind and in my heart, when I say I'm pro-life and when I say I'm anti-racism, that's a moral conviction, not a political conviction. So the second re re connection is, or parallel, is that some people see it as political when it is not. The, the, third, uh, the third thing is the most important, and that's to be pro-life and anti-racism means that I believe that, um, that conception is important to God and complexion is not. When I say I'm pro-life, that means, uh, for me, that means I believe that life begins at conception. But to be pro-life is, is to be more than anti-abortion. It is to be pro-life, not only from conception to birth, but from conception to death. For I believe that the sanctity of life, the holiness, the preciousness of life is not determined by the hue of one's skin. So for me to be pro-life and anti-racism is to believe that that life is precious, that, that conception is important to God, but complexion is not. I say all that, and I know I took a big part of the sermon to talk about me, but I say all that because I want you to know my heart. I want you to know my calling. I want you to know my motives. We don't have to agree on everything, but it is important to me that you know my heart. In Judges 4 and 5, the Bible tells the story of the people of Israel who for 20 years had been subjugated, oppressed by the Canaanites. And along came Deborah, the political, spiritual leader of Israel. She sensed a, a divine call to lead the people of Israel to fight for their freedom. And they did against Sisera. Sisera was the general of the Canaanites that had subjugated the Israelites for 20 years. And they fought. Now you remember that the people of Israel were divided into 12 tribes. In Judges 5, Deborah, after the fight is over and they've won their freedom, she lists the tribes that had been apathetic. For example, she says, Judges 5.15, Among the tribe of Reuben there was much searching of heart, meaning the members of the tribe of Reuben sat around scratching their heads and thinking, what should we do until it was too late to do anything? Verse 16 of Judges 5 reads, Reuben, why did you stay among the campfires to hear the whistling of the flocks? Meaning, why did you get your, allow yourselves to get so distracted? The chastisement of the uninvolved continues in verse 17. Gilead stayed by the Jordan. The tribe of Dan lingered by the ships. The tribe of Asher hid out in the coves. Your brothers risked their lives, Deborah says. Where were you? Hiding down at the water, or sitting around by the campfire, thinking, you know, we ought to do something. It is a shame to sit on the sidelines 
When there's work to be done and difference to be made. Deborah, in her song in Judges 5, has two lists. Those who sat on the sideline and did nothing and those who were in the gap. What if God were to have a list of people who were involved or apathetic and those who were involved? Oh, wait, he does. In Matthew 25, Jesus called it the division between the sheep and the goats. The needs of our society are great, overwhelming, almost paralyzing. We can't do everything, but, but there's somebody somewhere who will be better because you have gotten involved, if you will. There is some division, there's some problem, there's some situation that will be better somewhere if you will get involved and make a difference in whatever way that you can. In 1903, Edward Hale was the chaplain of the U.S. Senate. He said, I'm only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. What I can do, that I ought to do. And what I ought to do, by God's grace, I will do. I don't know what you're convictions and callings are, but at some point they meet. Those things you believe deeply in your heart and that divine prompting to do something. So are you going to sit down by the ocean and watch the waves? Are you going to, you're going to do something? 